Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rookrout. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we're back with another episode from our Contender series. We'll be finishing up the Below the Line categories. We're talking about makeup and hairstyling today, costume design, production design, and cinematography. I'm really excited to get into these categories today. And this week, we're really getting into what these films look like, getting into the nitty gritty visually of these films. And I love these categories, too, because... I think that oftentimes like makeup and hairstyling and costumes, production design, these aspects of a film, not only do they make you as a viewer feel a part of that world, but they can really help prepare actors for their roles and make them feel more like their characters. I think if you read interviews with actors or if you ever hear them talk about their process, they tend to cite the costumes. I always think about Uncle Junior in The Sopranos when he put on the glasses for the first time. He said he didn't feel like Uncle Junior until the costume department gave him those glasses. And you hear stories like that time and time again. And we certainly will go through some of those today. But I feel like these categories really help us unlock the worlds of the film. And it'll be interesting. Like last week, we had a wide variety of films that we talked about. And this week, we don't really. The contenders seem to really overlap in makeup and hairstyling, costume design and production design in particular. Yeah, I like this crop of categories because when I was doing research, the categories bled together. How the production design works with costumes and cinematography and bringing all of that together with the camera or the direction or how an actor portrays a character. Yeah, we really don't have a ton of variety movie-wise here. Oppenheimer and Poor Things are in all of the categories we'll be talking about today. But I think, again, that helped in my research in putting the pieces together in this puzzle of them constructing the film. And this is building on our episode from last week and how the sound fit in or the visual effects, if there were any, looking at how slight they are can still play into that production design and how they build up sets and what they can rely on in terms of imagination with other categories. So let's get started with makeup and hairstyling here. Our precursors, we have the Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild. That ceremony is on February 18th. So with the nominees at that guild, I'll just go over those category nominations quickly as I list the Oscar nominees. So at the Oscars, we have Golda that got one guild category nomination. We have Maestro that had three nominations at the guild. Oppenheimer had one. Poor Things had two, and Society of the Snow was the only Oscar nominee there that didn't have any category nominations. Our first nominee, Golda. Our makeup team here, Karen Hartley-Thomas, Susie Battersby, and Ashra Kelly-Blue are all first-time nominees in the category. This is one of our lone nominees at the Oscars, so you will only see Golda in the makeup and hairstyling category. What did you think of the work in this film? It's primarily prosthetics and makeup and hairstyling work on Helen Mirren and her transformation into this character. I thought the work here was good. I didn't really know much about Golda Mir. She's known as the Iron Lady 
of Israel, which is just kind of funny because we'll be talking about another nominee later on, Marc Coulier, who won for the Iron Lady. So I'm wondering if that's like a little hint if Golda does have a chance at winning. But I think Helen Mirren's transformation here is pretty cool to see. I still see her in this role, and I think that's why this movie works as much as it does. You know, you have those singular figures. She played the queen before. I loved that film. And she's so confident in her role. She really does become Golda. There is a lot happening that really makes her blend into her surroundings. And there are so many close-ups of her face and hair. So it's really one that is showcasing her work to the point that if there is any other work, it's really subtle and I didn't necessarily notice it. So it really is the Helen Mirren show here, but it's good work. You know, she wore a lot of prosthetic makeup and a bodysuit. She had contact lenses, a custom-made wig, eyebrows, fake teeth, silicone eye bags, a fake nose. She had a fake neck piece. She also had a different chin at one point, which they took out. It's just there is so much going in. This had to have taken hours every single day to get into this. And we'll mention that with other characters throughout this category as well. Oh, yeah. This is an example of the classic hours and hours in the makeup chair to transform the lead actor into another person. And we see this frequently in this category. Marc Coulier has done that on a number of films. You mentioned The Iron Lady. Also last year with Elvis, I remember thinking that he was going to pull out a win here because he won the BAFTA and Austin Butler also won the BAFTA. But sadly, that didn't come to fruition. But with Golda, I think you're right. Like it is, it's a lot, a lot of work. And while the movie itself did not work for me, I think that the makeup work is impressive. And in the research that they did, one of my favorite stories was that Karen Hartley Thomas, she told this story about how they were lucky because Golda's grandson was involved in the research process and gave them a lot of information about his grandmother and specific details about her appearance that then really influenced how they created this look. So one of the examples that he gave was about her hair texture and specifically that she would always braid her hair when it was wet and then put it up in a bun, which then as her hair would dry, it would give it this unique look and different texture to it than if she waited to braid her hair when it was dry, for instance. So little things like that, I think, are really cool little details that helped that team put together the character. Our next nominee is Maestro. Our team here, we have Kazuhiro. He has two wins and five nominations. This is my famous click nomination that I like to mention. <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> Kei Georgiou, this is her second nomination. And Lori McCoy Bell, this is her first nomination. So what do you like about the makeup and hairstyling here in Maestro? Well, I think here's another example, right, of someone spending hours in the makeup chair to become a different person. And here, this is a bit different from Golda because we also are seeing Bradley Cooper as Leonard Bernstein at so many different points in his life. And Kazuhiro, one of the really cool things that happened during the strike was that because Bradley couldn't do a lot of the Q&As, Kazuhiro was actually at a number of those Q&As talking about this process. So when I first saw Maestro, 
at New York Film Festival, Kazuhiro was there doing a Q&A, and he not only talked about Bradley Cooper as an actor playing Leonard Bernstein and, you know, using his existing facial features and designing, like, on top of that, he also talked about Cooper as a director. And one of the things that he mentioned was how his call time was so much earlier than normal, 1 a.m., a 1 a.m. call time, because Bradley Cooper wanted to be in full Leonard Bernstein makeup when he was directing. So he didn't want to have to, you know, stop the day's shooting or change up the schedule to get in the character's makeup. He wanted that process to be done before he actually started shooting the scenes for the day. So you imagine Kazuhiro getting up so early or maybe not even going to bed, having to change his entire sleep and working schedule to be able to put this together. And I think it is really phenomenal work. I think that you can still... At the end of the day, for me, like, I can still see Bradley Cooper. It does not look like a caricature of a person. Like, he he really resembles Leonard Bernstein in multiple moments of the movie. I think there are a few scenes where it's a little bit, it feels very heavy to me, the makeup. But I also think that they really had to use many, many additions throughout the process. So... As he's getting older in the film, they keep making these additions to the makeup and to the prosthetics, adding different details to his arms, adding a bodysuit, changing the hair. And all of that, I think, really goes into creating a character at so many different stages of his life. And much ado was made about the prosthetic nose, but I I think we should defer to the Bernstein children here and their opinions of it. And Bradley Cooper, in his regular life, has a nice big nose, just shaped differently. Yeah, the Bernstein kid said it was necessary to amplify his resemblance. And if they're appreciative of what Bradley Cooper is doing, of what Kazuhiro is doing, then I am all there for them as well. I think it does help with the physicality of the performance. You know, we're talking about his face, but also the bodysuit, changing his shoulders, and also doing his hands, you know, putting hair there, putting sunspots on there, because we see all of him. And I think that 1am call time is just so funny, because Bradley Cooper does feel like that kind of person who wants to be in control and blend into being Bernstein, becoming him and making sure his team sees him that way, too. I think it helped him in transforming. But then you do have to think like, wait, someone's doing that to him. Someone has to be there with him throughout that two to six hour process, which is how long it took. So it's, it is really fascinating to see. Again, it's a case of there's a lot with Bradley. Do I notice as much in the other characters? Not really. I'm sure there is with Carrie Mulligan, but again, it's subtle. She is naturally beautiful and there are some aging features that you see along the way. I mean, Cooper as Bernstein was aging from 25 to 71 years old, and so is she, and so are the kids to an extent. So to see it all, it it does blend together really well, and I don't think it's super flashy in the movie. I mean, a lot of the age makeup, especially on him, is really good. I mean, like, people always joke about this. It's like when the still comes out, the person is totally unrecognizable, but he really does look like an elderly Leonard Mm -hmm. Bernstein, which is, I mean, absolutely what Kazuhiro was going for. 
I do agree with you. I think you notice it less on Carrie Mulligan, on the work on her. Like, for me, her wigs that we get later in the film, like, it does look like less attention was paid towards that character, I think, by comparison. But I still think it's good work. I think she especially looks so glamorous and of that time period when she first arrives at that party to meet him. Like, I love her hair and makeup there. She looks just straight out of a classic Hollywood film. So yeah, I think it's great work. And for Bradley Cooper's work ethic, he's a Capricorn. It's what's expected. A natural born leader, but very particular. Our next nominee here, we have Oppenheimer. Louisa Abel, this is her first nomination. What did you think of the hair and makeup in Oppenheimer? There's definitely more of it going on here. We have our main actors who get the most of it. But we also have this aging factor as well. So there were 18 aging roles with three to five different stages per person, which is crazy. That's nearly 100 different looks for these people, let alone the other actors on stage in these shots with them. And the one fun fact, which I hadn't heard of before this, but Nolan has a no wig rule. Crazy. (laughs) Right? Like, yeah. Wild. He's worked with so many actors, and to think that all of it has been natural to an extent is kind of mind-blowing. So Emily Blunt's hair was dyed and cut, and he used a temporary hairspray, similar to what women had used back in those days, coloring their hair, to give it that sort of texture along with the grays later on. And something I liked, especially with Kitty kind of wraps into the costumes and how they developed her character from when we first meet her at the party. She's very elegant. And as she starts to drink more and more, her look kind of falls apart. And with that, you have this makeup that breaks down, becomes more character makeup as the story continues. And I think with the final looks, the aged looks, that is a bit more noticeable But in aging these characters, again, not wearing wigs, he had to do something pretty abrupt and showy. So I think it works as like this final punch where, especially with her character, she is really taking a stand in defiance against the people that wronged Oppenheimer. So I think it works here. Yeah, I agree. I feel like I have this phrase written down for every, for all of Oppenheimer's categories we'll talk about today, all four, just the volume of what was created and the work that had to be done with a cast that's that big that this spans four decades you know so it's a lot of work that they had to put in and one of the coolest things that I found in my research is that Universal has these great little Oppenheimer featurettes for all these different categories and I had two favorite facts that I learned from that the first is for the character Strauss the Robert Downey Jr. character He actually shaved his hairline back for that character. And that was Downey's decision to do that because he thought that like he would find the character that way if he moved the hairline back. And Louisa Abel thought that was just a great idea and was perfect. And it's funny, too, because I think when I watched it, I didn't know this about Nolan's no wig rule. And I just assumed that Downey was wearing a wig and that wasn't his real hair. But no, he shaved his hairline back for the character (laughs) to get the look right. And my other favorite fact was that 
Louisa Abel had what she called IMAX glasses. So she took her regular glasses to her optometrist and they made a pair of like ultra magnified glasses for her to wear. And she would put those on and call them her IMAX glasses because when you're shooting in IMAX, it really is like everything is under a microscope and everything has to look good, especially the makeup. Like there can't be any mistakes. So to check it, she would put on what she called her IMAX glasses to make sure there were no mistakes in her work and it would hold up to the IMAX cameras. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. There was also some de-aging going on, which they mostly used with Killian as Oppenheimer. They used plumpers and they took away some of the freckles on his face and they lightened his hair color. But another fun fact about Louisa, she also worked on Air and Hitman this year. So some of that aging I think we see in Air or just the changes in time period. And Hitman, I'm excited for people to see later this year. But there's so much with Glenn Powell. It's a really great use of makeup and hair. Maybe there's some potential that we could see it next year? Question mark. Our next nominee, we have Poor Things. Our team, we have Nadia Stacy. This is her second nomination. Mark Coulier, who I mentioned before, but he has two wins, and this is his fifth nomination. And Josh Weston, this is his first nomination. So what did you think of the makeup and hairstyling in Poor Things? I love the makeup and hairstyling in Poor Things. And what I really like about it, specifically I think goes to Willem Dafoe's character, Godwin Baxter, who's my favorite character in the movie. I just love Willem Dafoe's performance here, and I feel like he doesn't get lost in the prosthetics at all. And I read this great interview with him and Nadia Stacy, and that was something that they talked about that was really important to him in finding his character. He didn't want to be kind of like buried beneath this mask. He wanted it to feel really like effectively like a part of his face. And they wanted you to still be able to see Willem Dafoe in that role. And one of the things I loved that Nadia said about the book was that for her, there were specific guideposts within the book and within the script that helped her figure out how these characters should look in particular. So she said the moment when he mentions that his father performed operations on him when he was younger like that was a clue for her to then be able to make decisions of what his face would look like and when they eventually you know did these 3d scans and created molds of his face to start producing the work she was able to bring in all those little details to make the decisions of okay this will look like this kind of odd like his face was kind of cut up and then put back together in this kind of mask prosthetic that he's wearing. Yeah, to imagine his process having to do that for six hours a day as well is just so much. Mm -hmm. Another thing I liked with the film is with Emma Stone's character, Bella, Lanthimos is also a no-wig guy. Like, how are they doing this? But he works with wefts and extensions or plugs and... As her character develops, transforms, her hair gets longer and longer. So they kept adding extensions, nearly four feet of extensions into her hair. 
And initially it was supposed to be this like reddish deep brown color, but the colorist accidentally dyed her hair black. (laughs) So whoops. But I think it does play better with her character and her not wearing any makeup at all. I think it puts her in this stark environment and really does make it feel like she has the potential to grow or learn and develop through her character. So again, this is another one where this partners really well with costume design, which we'll talk about in the next category. But another character I loved with Catherine Hunter, she had a hundred plus tattoos put on her body and she was given this bruised looking skin. And I think she's one that just is totally spooky and blends into that environment so well. And she just fully fills out her character perfectly. I forgot about Catherine Hunter's character being like an example of the makeup in the film, but you're right. Like all the tattoos, but I can't get over that about the black hair because when you watch the movie, it really is jarring because that is just not a natural hair color Mm -hmm. at all. That black, like it just, it does not look like, she is of this world. Like she looks like she dyed her hair really, but it's, um, she's very, very pale and has those bright blue eyes. It makes everything kind of pop. And again, just seem unnatural, which is what that character is. (laughs) And our last nominee in the category, we have society of the snow. Our team here, we have Ana Lopez Puig Cerver. This is her first nomination and we also have David Marti and Montse Ribay. They both won for Pan's Labyrinth, and this is their second nomination. I know you really love Society of the Snow. We haven't really talked about it in full yet, but what did you think of the hair and makeup specifically in the movie? I think the hair and makeup is one part of the film that is really important to get right because we have these shots of the mountains around them, but those are... I'm assuming mostly visual effects and there are a lot of close-ups in the film of these people and we're really focusing on their stories and this very personal intimate look at their struggle at this traumatic event and how they survive. So I think getting that right really depends on seeing how they fit into this environment and by the end of the movie you want to be able to say as a viewer like holy crap How did they survive because of how you see their looks deteriorating throughout the film? So there was a lot going on. They have 20 plus actors where they have to make this look real and convincing. So there's a combination here of reality using prosthetics and digital effects. But apart from the characters, I mean, people die along the way. I don't think that's a spoiler, but The prosthetics were also used to recreate fake corpses using molds of the actors. So it's really part of the performance, but there's also things in the set which ties into production design. We won't be talking about this movie in that category, but I think that's a nice combination of how these categories and teams can work together too. What did you think of the work here? It's really good makeup work, and I think the big challenge for disaster movies or war movies is to not make the makeup look like one of those packs you get at Party City or that you see at Party City around Halloween. You know what I mean? Like the Uh. with the like stick on wounds like that. Mm -hmm. 
you don't want it to look fake. You don't want it to look like that. And here, it reminded me a lot of the makeup in All Quiet on the Western Front that we talked about last year. Like the chapped lips, Mm -hmm. what your face can look like when not only have you been in frigid temperatures for that long, but your body has also started to deteriorate and you become more emaciated. And I think that the work here, whether it's like more significant wound makeup that we see in that awful plane crash scene that we get that's just so visceral to when they are just sitting together outside trying to figure out what to do, how to pass time, how to be rescued, everything like that. I think the makeup work keys you in into just how desperate their situation is. And like you said, you really have to feel that by the end of the movie that it's a miracle that they are rescued. And I think you do. And the makeup work is a huge, huge part of that. And I love that this is the Pan's Labyrinth team too. Like I mentioned reading off the names, but it kind of makes sense, right? That they, like they're able to, like you said, work with the VFX team, also use prosthetics and some more like delicate makeup work to show us what these characters are going through. I think it connects really nicely with their work in that film too. Yeah, definitely. What would your write-in vote be for the category? So when I was thinking back to the makeup and the hairstyles that I really love from this year, I thought of makeup department head Joanne McNeil and hair department head Cleona Fury and their work on Priscilla, the Sofia Coppola film. When you have characters like Elvis and Priscilla Presley who are known for hair and makeup, like they're known for these glamorous looks, you have to get them 100% right. And they really do. And I think that, you know, a huge, huge challenge that was facing this team that I learned when I spoke with Kaylee Spaney earlier this year was that sometimes in one day, she would be decades apart in ages, she would be 14. Later in the same day, she'd be 25. And to be able to, I think, put those looks together so quickly is a huge challenge. And also they got like that, the Aquanet hairspray, the beehive, perfect. Her cat eye eyeliner was perfect. And I just feel like the makeup and hair in that movie also tells a deeper story about the character and about Elvis's hold on her and how we think of those looks like her crazy, you know, high hair or the fact that she wore false eyelashes when she went to the hospital to give birth. We think of those as things that are associated with Priscilla, but really like Elvis created that image for her. And that's just such a dark layer to that film. And the makeup and hair are a huge part of that. Well, that's a much more serious answer than mine. I am nominating (laughs) bottoms here. (laughs) There are a lot of action sequences and fight sequences that are very funny, but I think the makeup team does a great job in making that feel real, feel the impact of what they're doing and make it feel pretty vicious, especially during that final football sequence where there's so much blood. But just along the way, I mean, the iconic look of Rachel Sennett and Iowa Debery, you know, Rachel has that broken, bruised nose and bags under her eyes from again being bruised and Io's afro I just love the combination of looks that they put together and how it develops throughout the film and the makeup designer in interviews talked about also bringing back like glam from the 90s so it gives this almost retro 
modern feel to it like rom-coms or high school movies that we love from the past but bringing that into the present i love that pick it is very 90s like the hair and that lip color that a lot of them wear too is very like courtney cox that kind of like berry lipstick i noticed that when i was watching it too and what do you think should win i think poor things should win the work in really transforming multiple characters. I love the collaborations going on as well, but it really feels like a fully immersive experience. And again, we can talk about more categories where that feels apparent soon. But, you know, if you look at Bella, if you look at Godwin, if you look at supporting characters along the way, they really put their all into making each person feel Like they somehow fit in, but don't at the same time. What would be your winner in the category? I would give it to Maestro, even though it is pretty much on one character. I mean, I know there was work on other characters throughout the film. They're all period correct. There are a lot of wigs and there's a lot of makeup throughout. But the work on Leonard Bernstein, I think, is is just a huge undertaking to create a version of him that is, I think, really inspired by and also reflective of the real person. But you can also see Bradley underneath and he and his performance don't get lost in that makeup. I feel like that is really impressive work. And it's kind of crazy when you think about how many different iterations of Bernstein we get in the film. And that's thanks to Kazuhiro and his team. Our next category, we have costume design. Our guild here, we have the Costume Designers Guild. Their ceremony is February 21st. All of our nominees are nominated at the Costume Designers Guild. And as a reminder, our five nominees are Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, Napoleon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. So our first nominee is Jacqueline Duran for Barbie. She has two wins, and this is her ninth nomination. What did you think of the work in Barbie? I love the costumes in Barbie. It is a fashion and cinema lover's dream to watch Barbie, really. It's like every new costume that comes up, I was just in awe. I kept thinking, okay, what time period is that from? Which Barbie wore that? What part of the collection is that from? Is this inspired by Chanel or is this Bob Mackie? Like there were so many different ideas coming into my head as I was watching it that just made the Barbie experience that much more enjoyable. And I think with what Jacqueline Duran does here is she really leans into those archival pieces and thinking about who Barbie is as an icon and how many people have played with Barbie's since she was created in the 50s. And that's so cool to be able to just, I think, take an inspiration like that that stretches throughout so many decades and bring it to life in the way that she did. And one of my favorite things that I learned about Jacqueline Duran through an interview she did, I think it was with Entertainment Weekly, where she talked about how she thought of the costumes as packs. So like when you buy a Barbie or you buy, a, like you buy a new Barbie outfit, to go along with your doll. There are matching sets. Like it isn't just the outfit she's wearing. There's also a matching bathing suit and a different pair of shoes that go with that outfit and two different purses that match that outfit. And she really thought about each individual costume that Margot wore as Barbie in the same way that you would think about 
a Barbie doll. And that is just, I think that's so creative in thinking about how the product connects to the character. My favorite costume in the movie, I love the sparkly jumpsuit during the Dance the Night dance sequence. And she talked about how she wanted all of the Barbies to dress differently and to have their own style in that scene. But all of the Kens are dressed the same. So they're all wearing the same Mm. jumpsuit. And they, like, don't have an identity of their own. They're just kind of there as the Kens. But all of the Barbies have their own, like, different sparkling ensembles. And I just think that's so fun. Yeah, I love that. I think how Jacqueline used the outfits kind of as a layout and then modernized them. So we recognize the looks. People who either played with Barbies or grew up with them from the 60s until now can recognize, you know, what set they're from. And I love that part in the film, like when he throws the fur coat and it just kind of sticks in the air for a second and it flashes like where it came from. They do that throughout and I absolutely love that. So it just shows, I think, the craftsmanship and how many details there were going into it. Like with that fur coat, it was inspired by Rocky. Stallone shows up in like the montage of the patriarchy, but... She modified that coat by lining it with a print of horses. And obviously that's like a big (laughs) thing for the Gosling Ken character. And there was another one where, you know, he has that black leather fringe vest that I really love. And he has this headband with lightning on it. And that later matches a track suit that he wears of horses with lightning. So it's not only using looks, but combining them and then developing the character along with that. So I love so much about the work here. Did you see in Greta Gerwig's interview with Letterboxd when she talked about the cat eye glasses that Ryan Gosling wears with the fur coat who those are based on? I don't remember. She based them off of the Lermontov character in the red shoes. Oh, I love that. Isn't that fun? It's like you would never think of being inspired for a Ken costume by that character, but that just shows the magic of Greta Gerwig. Her influences know no bounds. (laughs) Our next nominee, we have Killers of the Flower Moon. This is Jacqueline West's fifth nomination. What did you think of the costumes in Killers of the Flower Moon? I think this is a case of our movie this year that has so much going into it, so much research. And it's not necessarily really showy or apparent when you're watching the movie. But if you focus on, with multiple viewings, different characters, you can see how much detail is actually happening. I love that she worked with an Osage consultant, Julie O'Keefe, throughout the process. And they really only thought to bring her on for a little bit of the shoot in terms of planning and getting it all set up. And then she was there throughout the entire production. So I think their work, again, with Julie is really great and apparent, and it shows. There are little things like, you know, separating the different districts that people came from and showing the nuances between those different families. One thing I really like about Molly is how she wears those blankets and how it really defines her character. Each of the sisters in her family acts differently and... Her at the time, again, they went through so much research and figuring out these characters. And we'll talk about Jack Fisk's process with that as well and taking months and months of getting things period correct as well. But her sisters, other people saw Molly as the moral compass. So the way she 
wears her blanket is really her holding on to tradition versus Anna, who has this more contemporary flapper design to the dresses she wears. So I think it really shows who the characters are. And there are so many characters. You know, I only mentioned a few of the women, but I think how Hale is dressed, how Burkhart looks a bit more tattered, everything is saying something about those characters, even though it's not showy. And I honestly appreciate that a bit more. I think the costumes here are really beautiful. And like you said, say something about each of the characters. And Jacqueline West and Julie O'Keefe were so interesting to hear from because they talked a, a lot about all of those things that you were saying in that there are different ways that everything is folded. So when you think about the blankets and the shawls, like when Molly is sitting and wearing her blanket in a particular way, we might not know what that means when we're watching the film, but to an Osage audience, that would signal something particular that she's feeling or a formality to an occasion, which again is just an additional important detail that also signifies the care that Scorsese and his team put into this movie. And I love that Lily Gladstone has talked about this too with her character Molly, that Molly has this dual nature as a character. She feels pulled between these two worlds. She's married to a white man, but she also very much wants still to be a part of her Osage tradition. So like you said, how she and Anna as their sisters, but they dress very differently. All of the sisters dress very differently. And you can see how they might be like from the same background, but the way that history is changing, they've made different choices in how they want to present to the world. My favorite costumes in the movie, though, do actually belong to De Niro. In particular, I compared him a lot to when I saw the movie John Huston's character in Chinatown. And one of the things I love about that character is how he's always wearing white or cream, a lot of like light tones, and he's shown in the daylight. And we have a number of scenes that are exactly like that with Hale in this movie. And it's this really cool scary depiction of his evil hiding in plain sight. It's it's easy to show someone who is evil just existing in these dark rooms and dark corridors. And sometimes he is, but a lot of times he's in the sunlight. He's outside. He's in these bright windows wearing tan and white and cream. And that is, I think, such a cool detail of the character. And I also, of course, want to mention those great driving goggles that he wears. They're, I think, an incredible detail of the character and just make him, again, in a similar way to the Houston character, Noah Cross. Like, he he does some things that throw you off kilter to make you think, oh, this character is kind of silly or just like a regular, I don't know, guy. And then he'll just say something completely evil and just reminds you of who he actually is. Our next nominee is Janty Yates for Napoleon. She has one win, and this is her second nomination. And Dave Crossman, this is his first nomination. So what do you think of the costumes in Napoleon? I think Napoleon, this is another case of an insane volume of costumes. Crossman created over 4,000 military uniforms for this movie. There are also 300 hand-sewn and detailed gowns. One of my 
favorite details really is how they changed Napoleon's battle attire to match where he was economically in his life. So you'll see like in Toulon, he is very poor at that time. So his attire looks a bit more tattered than later in the film when he's a general and much more well off and his military uniform indicates that. But I think if I had to pick a favorite costume from the movie, it would be the coronation attire for both Napoleon and Josephine. Specifically, Josephine has these incredible shoulders. They're almost like shoulder pads. And then she has this great collar and it's this beautiful beaded gown and a crown. And she just, it just looks, it's what you would expect from a movie like Napoleon, but it's again, just so intricate and detailed and He, of course, has that, like, the fur and the velvet, and it just, it looks like something from a painting from that time. What did you think of the costumes here? I feel similarly. This really is that nomination from a period film. They love these, like, Elizabethan-type dresses and gowns and cloaks. You say the coronation looks like a painting. It was based on the actual painting, the coronation of Napoleon. So they really inspected that to find out how many people were there, what they were wearing. And that's how they blocked that scene as well. But then as they are crafting the film, they also had to consider the actors, which is not really something I would ever have considered, like Joaquin being vegan. So they couldn't use wool in the hat that they made for him. So they used tree bark, which is just (laughs) crazy. (laughs) And that's how they made the hat, but it looks so real. And one other fun thing that I saw in an interview with the Motion Picture Association is that Janty literally said, she goes, Josephine was a complete jewelry whore. (laughs) And... (laughs) All of the diamonds embedded and jewelry they use, it's all costume jewelry, but the fact that it looks so real and elegant is just a really important part to making this feel like we're entering this heightened society, this really rich and lavish set, and we definitely do that. That's so funny about her being a jewelry whore. I love that detail. Our next nominee, we have Oppenheimer. Our costume designer is Ellen Mirajnik. This is her first nomination. What did you think of the costumes in Oppenheimer? I think the costumes are great. I think this is another example of there being a lot, not necessarily as much as Napoleon, but with Oppenheimer, they never changed his silhouette. He was always in that suit throughout his life. And I kind of mentioned this with Kitty earlier, but, you know, she was really simple, elegant in the beginning. And when she moved to Los Alamos, she had more of a tomboy appearance. She wore natural colors instead of like the blue in the beginning. And then later on, as she continues to drink more, her looks were put together more haphazardly. And Morozhnik and Blunt like literally had a pile of clothes on the floor and she would tell Emily to just grab things and put them together and see if it worked. So she really wanted to make it feel practical, not really cleanly paired outfits, but something that felt like you could go into your closet, just pick whatever. Well, you talking about Kitty, my favorite costume in the movie is actually one of her looks. I remember when I first saw it thinking I would totally wear that. 
It's when she and Oppenheimer are riding the horses and then they get off and she's wearing like those brown trousers and the gray blazer with the brown leather gloves. Mm-hmm. Perfect look. I love that. And he's almost matching her and it, they just look really, really good in that moment. Um, but again, this is another one. I think one of the big challenges really in that creating a thousand costumes across four decades, that is just such a lift for this team. And I think what's so beautiful is that they are period correct, but they flow really seamlessly from scene to scene. And they also just match like the color palette of this movie is so pleasing to me. And you talked about Oppenheimer, the silhouette really not changing, but another character with Strauss Mirajnik talked a lot about how he was very stylish and manicured as a person. So all of his clothing was bespoke. Everything was tailored specifically for him, and he had a very particular style as well. So I think it's fun to watch it and to see the juxtaposition in styles between Oppenheimer and Strauss. They're very much foils in certain parts of the film. And I think you can see that through the wardrobe and how they carry themselves. Oppenheimer is a bit looser in his silhouettes. Strauss is a bit more buttoned up. They're both formal. Like, they they both fit in the time. But they choose to carry themselves and dress themselves in very different ways. And I like being able to see that through men's fashion, too. And our final nominee, we have Holly Waddington in Poor Things. This is her first nomination. What did you think of her work here? I really love her work here in Poor Things. I feel like the costumes are actually the technical element that stood out to me the most when I first saw it because I love how they're so Victorian at at certain times, but we have this evolution in how we look at fashion in the film and how the characters, specifically Bella, play with clothing and think about how she thinks about dressing herself. So in speaking with Holly Waddington earlier this year, one of my favorite things that we talked about was that Yorgos didn't want Holly Waddington to make obvious baby clothes, but she was inspired by them. So there are little details that will look like Victorian baby clothes but that are also just really unexpected. And one of the fun things about the costumes is how Bella mixes and matches her outfits and takes items of clothing off throughout the day in a way that a toddler would. So she was her approach to costumes was also in not just what the clothing looks like, but how you wear a piece of clothing and what you should or shouldn't pair it with at the time. So she has this short little I love that like roughly like frilly cape that she wears that's like a little shawl and she doesn't know what to pair it with so like in certain scenes she'll be wearing shorts and a cape instead of like wearing certain things in pieces she'll wear it she'll wear something that's supposed to go with an evening cape or a petticoat completely on its own so it's like the character is telling you that she's out of the house for the first time with an adult's wardrobe that she doesn't know how to wear at all. And another detail that I really liked is when we get to the Paris portion of the movie, Waddington talked about how she didn't want to use any kinds of like reds or blacks in the brothel scenes because we see that and that's what we come to expect in brothels in movies from this time period. So she wanted to play with like different flesh colored tones in those costumes. And I feel like it just adds this kind of like unexpected look to 
the costume. So I think that really paid off. I mean, there are so many good ones. We can talk about the condom coat <laughs> that she made, that cape that was inspired by the look of a Victorian condom that looks like it's made of latex. It's, again, it's just like, I like how she plays with the phallic and the yonic imagery and the sexual exploration of the character and puts that design and that visual aesthetic into the look of the costumes. Yeah, I liked how she took these trends in fashion at the time and made them feel modern. The big thing were those massive sleeves. And then with the men, they would have rounded thighs and pumped out chests. So Mark Ruffalo is actually wearing a corset, which kind of shocks me. But I think they all blend together really well. Again, it's that eccentric quality to these characters or another layer that they're wearing that adds to their personalities. And I think that really plays well within you can see those. But one fact that I love that Waddington said is that yellow and black are nature's warning colors. So again, I think the black hair for Bella plays into that. And you see that with the yellow she wears, she has this white and yellow set that she wears. And I still can't get the Disney comparison out of my mind, but I haven't seen that said anywhere which i'm intrigued by and as we wrap up the category what would your write-in vote be my write-in vote is probably for something that i would give the win if it were here it's for passages and khadija zagai the costume designer there i just think what she paired with these characters and what they wear is what I remember about fashion this year. We have so many sweaters that I love and you have Martin's red silk kimono that he wears in the bedroom and Tomas's crop top, that like meshy crop top, his brown Sherpa-like jacket. You have Agat's red turtleneck. All of these images that are also playing with gender. So I love how she made all of these characters singular people but i think the costume design flows very well and the color specifically between the characters and where they are emotionally throughout the film what would your write-in vote be candidly this is my pick but i'll give some variety so for our listeners if you're wondering how we come up with our write-in votes every year i actually keep a note in my phone where like throughout the year after i see a movie i will put like certain things I really liked about it or different categories. And my pick here for Asteroid City, my note after seeing the movie was who put Adrian Brody in that t-shirt because it is perfect. (laughs) I will never forget my theater. These two women and I watching it gasped when he first appeared and I knew he was going to be in it. And People had warned me and told me, like, you're going to love him in this movie, but it didn't really prepare me for seeing him in the white t-shirt with the trousers. It was too much. And the woman who made this decision is the genius legend, Melina Canonero, who won the Oscar for Barry Lyndon for costume design many years ago at this point. Um, She also won for the Grand Budapest Hotel, Marie Antoinette, and Chariots of Fire. So again, legend in the field. And of course, this work also extends to really incredible, colorful, period, accurate costumes on all of the characters in this movie. They're so playful. I love like what the kids are wearing, 
what Margot Robbie wears in that scene, this like very Queen Elizabeth like costume that she's wearing. But, you know, it shows you that Canonero can really do it all. She made a great decision by fitting him in that t-shirt and those trousers. And what do you think should win? I think that Barbie should win. I think back to how I felt when I first like saw all of those costumes and just the sense of wonder within me as the film unfolded and not just every single one of Margot Robbie's looks in the movie, but really the construction and recreation of all of these different Barbies and Kens throughout time over Christmas. I was in this like old antique toy store that I go in every year just to see what they have. And there was an Allen like an original Allen doll that they had there. And he was wearing the exact same costume that Michael Sarah is wearing in the movie. And I recognized him as Allen from that particular yeah. time period because of the movie. So I just feel like it's, it's great work. I think it just shows why people connected with this film and why it was such a positive experience for so many. What about you? My answer is also Barbie. Barbie core this year was just such a huge trend and moment. I mean, you think about Halloween and how many people dressed up as different characters from the movie. Another favorite look of mine of Barbie and Ken, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling are their Western outfits when they show up almost like it's the Wild Wild West in L.A. And that being their idea of what real society is like or the images of them going into L.A. like that, I think is really smart so there are little things like that even along the way that play with the archival costumes but are also really inventive in terms of story our next category we have production design our guilds the art directors guild this takes place on february 10th and the set decorator society of america on february 13th so our nominees for the category we have barbie Killers of the Flower Moon, Napoleon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. Our first nominee, Barbie, our production designer is Sarah Greenwood, and Katie Spencer is the set decorator. They are both nominated for their seventh Oscars here. What did you think of their work in Barbie, and did you have a favorite set? I think the production design in Barbie is really what makes it stand out as a film. Every set or scene that you see is so apparently Barbie. And I think the construction of that is very, very interesting. They analyzed Barbie's dream house. They looked at these actual sets to see, you know, what they could make physical or what were decals, what were stickers in those sets. So when she opens the fridge, it's all stickers, but there are other physical things that they can touch and move around that look almost like they were like blown up from a set like honey I shrunk the kid or something because it looks concealed in this environment and a fact that I love is that they reduced the scale of the houses so when they were designing the sets and everything they reduced it all by 23 percent to make the actors look bigger and then one of the houses in particular again this comes for Greta Gerwig and her influences and what movies she loves from film history. But the weird Barbie house was based on Boo Radley's To Kill a Mockingbird house and also the Bates Psycho house. And I love that shot that we get of Barbie walking up the stairs 
to mm-hmm. Weird Barbie's house, which is another Red Shoes reference. Love that. Yeah. I love the work here. Highly recommend the Architectural Digest video of Barbie's dream house. Margot giving a little tour, and then you have Sarah Greenwood sharing facts about it, and Greta Gerwig also sharing her inspirations. It's just a delight if you love this movie. But again, like I mentioned with costumes, Barbie was invented in the late 50s, and Greta Gerwig really wanted the team to ground everything in that time period first, and that was also why she was so inspired by 50s soundstage musicals and wanted to bring that look and feel into this movie. So I love that aspect of it and how she is really stretching and thinking about different you know, cinematic influences and how that affects the production design and the world she wanted to create. And I love all of the pink and how obsessed they were with getting the pink right. But I think you also hit on my favorite detail of that set, which is the decal, like thinking of things that are two-dimensional and so obviously artificial, but yet still beautiful. It reminded me and took me back in time to when I was growing up playing with Barbies and the food was plastic or you had those decals on like the toy microwave or the toy refrigerator. It has a quality that's just so joyful, I think, and so clever at the same time. So yeah, I I absolutely love the work here. Our next nominee, we have Killers of the Flower Moon. Our production designer, Jack Fisk, this is his third nomination. And set decorator, Adam Willis, this is his first nomination. So what did you think of the work here on Killers and what is your favorite set? So Jack Fisk is my favorite living production designer. I am really obsessed with his work and especially with his work in Killers of the Flower Moon. My favorite story about Jack Fisk is that when he was in his early 20s working as art director on Badlands, his first of seven collaborations with Terrence Malick, um, he met his future wife, Sissy Spacek. Neither of them were famous yet. And to connect with her, he put little knickknacks and objects in her character's bedroom to make her feel really grounded in her character. And that's not only just a really cute story that worked in establishing their decades-long marriage now, but it also, I think, shows exactly how Fisk operates as a production designer, as a builder, as someone who thinks of actors and characters first. And I think you can see that in the level of detail across his film. So he's worked with Malik, yes, but he's also worked with David Lynch. So Anything you see in Mulholland Drive, that's Jack Fisk. There Will Be Blood, um, which I think really pairs nicely with Killers of the Flower Moon and is kind of a nice segue. We can see a lot of similarities, I think, between those two movies. Um, Not just like the oil derricks, but going out into the middle of nowhere and constructing these beautiful, magnificent sets. And that's exactly what he does. It's hard for me to pick a favorite because... The work that he put into this movie is just beyond. It, to me, like, everyone needs to give Jack Fisk this much money because this is what he can do with it. He built an entire town. He built an entire train station with a working train. He constructed dozens of houses. And I think I, you know, I I guess I would pick, if I had to pick a favorite set of his... Because I really could talk about him for like an hour. We should maybe consider 
doing a little series or something on him or an episode at some point. But it's this combination pool hall and barbershop because it is such a unique, distinctive space. And it also shows you so much about those characters because these evil men on the inside as they're playing pool or getting their hair cut, it's almost like they can survey the town on the outside. There are these huge glass windows which those were also Fisk's idea to put in those big windows so that they can really keep watch over the town. And you can really see through the production design who makes the decisions and who holds the power. And a really cool story about Fisk there is that he was inspired to create this set as a combination pool hall and barbershop because when he was growing up in a small town in Illinois... They had a pool hall and a barbershop combined, and he had that memory and brought it back into this. And he found that in research that he read, a lot of towns would actually combine different businesses into one location. So he felt like this would be a good opportunity to do that, and Scorsese was on board with it. Yeah, I think his work here is monumental. The fact that he worked on 50 locations... He created Molly's House and Hale's Cattle Ranch from scratch. There was this two-block stretch of abandoned buildings, which we see as the town, and made all of those interiors workable. So it, it really is phenomenal. I love the story of the barbershop pool hall. In constructing those houses, what I really loved is, one, how... He made Hale's house slightly taller than all the others to show how Hale kind of ruled this area. But then also with Molly's house, and I'm assuming Hale's house too, but again, he really researched trying to find what they actually looked like. But he modified them so the camera could function a little bit more easily in these settings. So whether that be door frames or adding a second story... It really allowed Scorsese and Prieto to work in these settings in between exteriors and interiors more easily and fluidly, but also it all feels so organic. It doesn't feel like anything is manufactured. It all feels like it was of the time. So I love that it transports you pretty much immediately when the film starts. And our next nominee is Napoleon. Our production designer is Arthur Max. This is his fourth nomination. And the set decoration is by Ellie Griff. This is her first nomination. What did you think of the production design? And did you have a favorite set in the movie? There's a lot going on here. And it's really the different battles that Napoleon has to fight through. I mean, we have the interiors of the castles and other homes as well. But I think making each battle sequence singular and different from one another was really important, and I think that does work well in the film. I would probably say my favorite is that Frozen Lake sequence. It's also just, I think, the most technical of the battles, because in that, they shot it on a London airfield and excavated a tank from where they would fall in, and they used visual effects here. They used underwater cameras to also get the look that they were going for. And how they described this, I thought was just fascinating. They used a hydraulic mechanical collapsing ice field in this tank. 
it looks terrifying when you see the bodies falling through the ice and just the formations that they're going through, that they're stuck in this area, and that it was a fraction of the size of what it looks like in the film where they were actually working. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me in learning more about the production design for Napoleon, because when I was watching it, I think I was so curious about the interiors and the furniture. Like at that survivor's ball where Josephine and Napoleon meet, or even later, just the interiors of the houses and the office spaces. I I just, well, one, I just love antique furniture, but I learned that they had some loans from the Victoria and Albert, the V&A in London. So some of their archives, they were able to use those in the film, which I think is is really, really cool. And other things they saw, but they weren't able to use, like there was this amazing red velvet bed that they saw in the V&A and wanted to use, but they wouldn't actually let them use that. So Ellie Griff was able to replicate that instead. Our next nominee is Oppenheimer. We have our production designer, Ruth DeYoung, and set decorator, Claire Kaufman. They are both first-time nominees. So what did you think of the production design here with Oppenheimer? One of the really cool things about the production design in Oppenheimer is that DeYoung is Jack Fisk's protege. So he is a really good friend to hers. He's her mentor. They work together on There Will Be Blood. And I think you can see his essence and inspiration throughout this movie. Because in a similar way to Fisk, she never wants her sets to feel like a set. Everything is built. Like they went out and built their own version of Los Alamos. She created a road to get the crew to the set which is the exact same thing that Fisk did for his team. When Oppenheimer says, build a town, build it fast, that's exactly what she did. One of the cool things that I learned about her collaboration with Nolan is that he told her he didn't want to make a documentary. So in her research process and when she came across archives and different pictures and resources from the time, she had to just use that as inspiration, but it was up to her to really create her own spin on what that would look like for this film in particular. She built 25 total 360-degree sets, an exact replica of the bomb, that tower that you see, she and her team built that. And I think one of the coolest things that I learned was that she lost one of her locations, specifically the location of the Oval Office. I learned this through her interview with Vanity Fair, and they had to build the location from scratch and they created the oval office in five days they used a veep set that she had a connection with and a couple of other repurposed sets and they had to create that in five days because gary oldman had a scheduling conflict so the magical work of production designers yeah that's crazy and i do really think the design of killers and oppenheimer work well together because You know, as they were looking for this town, Nolan likes to shoot really everything either on location or no ADR, like we mentioned last week, no wigs. Like it's very real to him. And he wanted to shoot on location in Los Alamos, but it wasn't practical. So they ended up shooting the interiors there, but they shot the exteriors in Ghost Ranch in northern New Mexico on this 21,000 acre estate of vast plains and they wanted those backdrops of the mountains 
really to feel like they were secluded in this new empty space. And that is definitely what it feels like. I like that Ruth also previously worked with Hoyta, the cinematographer we'll talk about next on Nope. And I think there are a lot of similarities there too on these like from scratch builds and using IMAX, these large scale formatted shots. And I think what they do with the environment is really important in really all three of the films I just mentioned. But yeah, I definitely like their work here on Oppenheimer. And our last nominee is Poor Things. Our production designers are James Price and Shona Heath. And set decoration is by Zhuzha Mihalik. They are all first-time nominees. What did you think of the production design in Poor Things? And did you have a favorite set? Kind of like we've been mentioning for this entire movie, every category mentioned so far, the production design is just another really eye-popping layer to add to this environment. I loved reading that the Baxter house was made as if Godwin had created it from his perspective. There are like ears in the lounge with these plush floors. And I would have to rewatch to look at the ceilings, but the roof of the atrium is almost like the palate of your mouth, which is just really bizarre. I finally got in seeing some behind the scenes footage that those early shots of the stitches in that silky material were basically like wallpaper in her room. They were covering the walls. So I like how that plays together. And I think it was just in combining all these different elements. You have like phallic windows from the brothel. You have this Wizard of Ozian look for Lisbon after Bella leaves home. And she's, again, on this journey, this adventure And she feels like she's in this new land. So I think it does follow the story well. And it really makes you unsettled to the point that you have to see it multiple times to really appreciate all of the different elements that it's throwing at you. One thing that I liked learning about with the work here is that they had similar processes with Lanthimos that we talked about with his collaborators last week on our first episode in the series. So he didn't really give them much at the beginning. He kind of let them do their own thing and figure it out and use their own creative process for the initial rendering of the world. And one of the biggest pieces of that is that they didn't work with Holly Waddington, the costume designer, right away. They waited to collaborate until they both started going. And then they realized that they had come up with things that really played off of each other. I think my favorite thing about the production design, just in addition to what you mentioned, is how much it references different types of architectural styles and different artists from around the world. Um, So one of the examples that I thought was really cool was that the Baxter House was inspired by John Stone, who was an architect who, he was a classical architect, but he experimented with light and space in a brand new way at the time. So the idea that like using inspiration from a classical architect like this, and then having that also be a way to see into Godwin Baxter's mind, I think is, it's just really interesting how they were able to, to look at so many different architects and artists for inspiration, but still make something that felt like it was entirely their own. And in wrapping up the category, what would your write-in vote be? My write-in vote would be for Fiona Crombie for her work in 
Bo is Afraid. I think that Bo is Afraid is this sprawling odyssey. I think that a lot of the words that people use to describe poor things could actually be used to describe a movie like Bo is Afraid, which I actually find to be far more inventive in its storytelling and just how it makes you feel when you're watching it. But I think that the the sets in this movie, I mean, when he is... Like, when you are in that panic attack of the beginning of this movie, and he's in a neighborhood that, you know, makes me think of our time living in Bushwick, it's an accurate visual representation of what's going on in his mind. And as we move through the film, it's set after set, and it's just a new layer as you get deeper and deeper into his mind in this, like, cinematic panic attack, honestly. And I think that is what production design really is supposed to do. I think it's really great work. What would your write-in vote be? Mine is for one that I really didn't expect to get in, but it's past lives. I think Grace Yoon and Joanne Ling's work here is so subtle, but I love how it but I love how it uses New York as a really important place for this movie to be set and in how these characters connect and develop whether that's together or not. But I think just the journey that they go on, the different objects involved, I think the statues in particular from the beginning and then once they meet again are so touching because it's telling you who these characters are, how they're interacting, and where they're going in their life. So it plays with the story and the character's development again really well. And I think there's just so much happening. There's a review from the LA Review of Books that mention, you know, every time something important happens, there's this reflective surface in the background. And that kind of just shows the layers of possibility. And, you know, what if we had met? What if we had stayed together and dated and, you know, formed this life together? So it really makes you think of this relationship in so many different ways. And that's, I think, why it also pushes onto you, the viewer, and thinking about it in a particular sense in your history of relationships continuously throughout your viewing. I love that pick. And what do you think should win? I'm going with Barbie here. I love the design work. I really think it's flawless because of when I think of production design of the year, Barbie comes to mind first. And I definitely think their work should be celebrated. What do you think should win? I think that Jack Fisk should win for Killers of the Flower Moon. I think that this movie feels like you went back in time. It really does. Like It just feels like he found this fully constructed town and went to shoot there. But he built that entire thing from scratch. Everything that you see there. And just... Thinking about how he spoke about, you know, working with the Osage community and the importance of painting the houses even in the way that he did. And I think his work is just perfect here. I mean, I think, again, he's my favorite production designer. So, of course, like I'm going to pick him. But I just I saw the movie again yesterday and I just continue to be in in awe. This is all new. None of it feels new, but it's all new. Yeah, I agree. All right, and our last category is cinematography. 
Our guild here, we have the American Society of Cinematographers. They have their ceremony on March 3rd. I'll also mention the British Society of Cinematographers. Robbie Ryan won there for Poor Things, which is interesting. Our nominees, we have Ed Lockman for El Conde, Rodrigo Prieto for Killers of the Flower Moon, Matthew Libatique for Maestro, Hoyte Van Hoytema for Oppenheimer, and Robbie Ryan for Poor Things. So our first nominee, Ed Lockman for El Conde, this is his third nomination. What did you think of the work here? I don't love the film El Conde, but I think the cinematography is beautiful. I'm so happy they shot it in black and white in that Pablo Lorraine and Ed Lockman fought for black and white because I think it does give it this otherworldly, fantastical quality. It feels like you can't quite pinpoint what time period you're in. And I also think, you know, this movie's really gruesome. And I, I had a very hard time with that, if I just to be honest. But I think the fact that it was in black and white made watching them drink the blood smoothies a little bit easier because they weren't bright red. But one of my favorite facts about the movie was that Ed Lockman talked about making sure that that blood, you could tell that it was a different shade Like he played with different types of black to see if it was more of like a red black or a blue black and how the blood would come across on screen because it's such a key part of the film. And I think you can tell also that, you know, Lachman, he was really inspired by Greg Toland and his work with Orson Welles here. I think that it does have that kind of old Hollywood sparkling quality to it, which doesn't necessarily match with what Pablo Lorraine is doing sometimes, I think, or trying to do, but Pablo Lorraine's films are not my cup of tea. I'll say that. But Ed Lockman's work, very much so. I definitely feel similarly about the film. I liked how Lockman talked about using monochromatic sensors because it's better camera-wise and color-wise using that instead of a color camera and then converting that to black and white. So he got to keep a lot of those details intact and I really think it works because it gives you this moody lighting with all of these heavy shadows that look like old Dracula films and something that Lachman said that I really liked is that he was aiming for a naturalistic expressionism with texture in the shadows so that also played with the lighting and how they used either exteriors or interiors depending on time of day and specifically interiors there's a chandelier that they used with low wattage bulbs and dimmers to give it a certain effect our next nominee we have rodrigo prieto for killers of the flower moon this is his fourth nomination what did you think of his cinematography i really love prieto's work here i think particularly just the lenses they used and the cameras they used scorsese actually had this 1917 bell and howell camera in his own collection that they used for the stage newsreel footage. Also, another fun fact, we mentioned these last year, which made me laugh, but they used these anamorphic Petzval lenses to convey the horror of the murders because with these lenses, there's this distortion, almost a fisheye, but it allowed you when you saw these bodies of these Osage people being murdered in the beginning the image itself made you feel some sort of uneasy apart from the deaths and in some cases how they died, you know, showing that in a horrific way. But the Petzval lenses were used in Elvis to convey this similarly 
distorted appearance. So the connection to Elvis and killers, I don't know about that so much, but I think (laughs) the use of them makes sense. And I'll mention them again later on when they were used in a different movie. I think something you would have guessed more easily than this. The king of the fisheye. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting though, because I don't think you can really tell here. I think it's much more of a subconscious mm-hmm. trick. I think maybe that's just Rodrigo Prieto is just one of the best cinematographers working. And I also just trust Scorsese to not do something to make it a gimmick, but to actually make it conjure up a feeling within you that's really purposeful. And I love, love this work here. Prieto talked about the Osage worldview and how inspired he was by that worldview and how he didn't really think about photography and photographs of them as much as he thought about how connected the Osage were to nature. So in any scenes where it was just Osage rituals, he would make everything as naturalistic as possible. And he used his research of the Osage spiritual worlds to inform the ways that he would shoot these scenes and to try to depict what they were going through. And I think that's just, it's so beautiful. And you can tell when you're watching those scenes how important nature is. And one of my favorite details there was how important the position of the sun was to the Osage and their rituals and how he really played with that in what these characters were doing outside. So when Molly is praying and it's sunrise, we have to see the sun within the frame. And he created these kinds of circles of sunlight in these key moments and thought about how the Osage would practice certain rituals or hold certain ceremonies at different times during the day and where the sun would be at those times. And the owl is just my favorite thing in this whole movie. I love the owl so much and how that owl is used and how it feels like you're in an empty room with the owl somehow and that he used a particular trick with the owl trainer keeping the trainer close to the camera and they didn't expect the owl to fly that close to the camera but it did Hmm. great animal acting like snoop our next nominee is matthew libatique with maestro this is his third nomination what did you think of his work here i think that his work in maestro is really beautiful i think it has that sparkling old Hollywood quality to it. Um, it did remind me a bit of Eric Messerschmidt's work in Mank, especially the black and white scenes, but we had a number of films. You mentioned this on, you mentioned this a few episodes ago, but that had black and white and color and whether or not this was going to be a theme going forward, but it is here. And I think that the um, transition between black and white and color works really well. And if I'm thinking of my favorite shots in the movie and how they put those together, the first one that made me think, okay, Bradley Cooper and Matthew Lee Petit are pulling out all of the stops here is this wide shot of Bernstein in the window when he first gets the call that he's going to play at Carnegie Hall and he gets out of bed and it looks like it is just from like one of those old Hollywood big studio films. And I also like the way that Lee Petit uses lighting and shadow to show us how our characters are feeling at any given time. So 
there are two shots of Felicia that I really like. One, when we see her and you see Lenny's shadow just overtake her practically. Mm -hmm. And it's a great metaphor for how she's feeling in that moment, in that relationship. And there's another, another shot when she's standing next to a wall and that wall changes. It becomes this brick wall next to her and she in this keeping the shot really close to her it shows you I think how she's feeling in that moment that she kind of wishes she could get back to those earlier days in her relationship and that that might be what she's clinging on to yeah my favorite thing about the cinematography are those old Hollywood influences one when we see Felicia approach the bus stop and I think the lighting is just gorgeous and there's this tree-lined street behind her that's in darkness and she's really highlighted and I think that's the perfect way to have introduced her character. Later on obviously the Ely Cathedral sequence and how that camera moves throughout the audience but fact-wise I really loved hearing Levity talk about the four to three camera ratio this typically old Hollywood sized frame and You know, when we have the two shot of them fighting at Thanksgiving, this was really important because it felt like you were the child watching this fight happen. But later on, you know, when they're separated, the aspect ratio changed to 16 to 9. And when he was shot alone, Bernstein, he felt way more lonely in this bigger frame. So I liked how they played with the ratios there to make you feel as an audience a certain way about them. Our next nominee, we have Oppenheimer, shot by Hoyte van Hoytema. This is his second nomination. What did you think of his work here on Oppenheimer? I think his work here is so grand. I love so many of those shots of the nature as we're sweeping over this environment. And I still remember watching the movie for the first time, how in awe of that I was. And that is in part due to the 65 millimeter IMAX film that they got from Kodak. And this was brand new because they hadn't made it in black and white before this large format film. So they had to re-engineer the cameras to fit this new stock. So I think planning the film and how you are going to shoot it, which sequences are in black and white, which are in color, makes it just so much harder because of knowing when to use what camera and how that plays into the story visually but also emotionally and the black and white sequences i love that again a little tenant fact but they had worked with more refined lighting before on tenant with the blue and the red so that helped them shoot differently obviously than the color sequences but when they needed to i think hoyte van hoytema's work here is the best use of color in black and white that we have because i think that he's so good at using IMAX and thinking about the scope of that and shooting these grand landscapes like I love all of the aerial shots in the movie but also thinking of how to make the film feel much more intimate and character driven that's something I really appreciate that sometimes I feel like is missing from these large scale films that are all about the sweeping vistas and the epic feel I think that this film really cares about the characters too and The cinematography clearly captures that. And I loved learning, too, that Nolan wrote black and white into the script because he wanted to make a clear distinction between the two storylines. 
So he knew that it was going to be that way. And I think that Hoyte Van Hoytema is the perfect choice for shooting this movie. I think there's so many, so many beautiful shots um, that I think of when I think of the film. And they are really kind of a mix of these grand shots of the landscape and where they are in the world, but also close-ups of Killian Murphy that show how Oppie is feeling at any given time. And then our final nominee is Poor Things and the cinematographer Robbie Ryan. This is his second nomination. What do you think of the cinematography here? So the Yorgos Lanthimos style, I will call it, even though, yes, like Robbie Ryan is shooting this movie. I don't love the fisheye lens. It's just not something that works for me. I said similar things last year. I remember when we talked about Bardo, like it's just something that my eye just does not respond to. But I do think there is like plenty of creative work here. And I do think that sometimes that lens actually works well in thinking about like transformation sequences or experiencing these worlds that are a bit disorienting. And I think it is just a really bold looking film. It's very bright. Even the black and white scenes, I think, have this brightness to them. And in a similar way to our other collaborators here, um, Robbie Ryan worked really closely with Holly Waddington and Shona and James, the production designers. So I think that he was able to work with them and make sure that the color palettes made sense and everything, I think, flowed really nicely together. When I think of some of my favorite shots in the movie, they are of the worlds that our production designers created. So a lot of it is through Bella's perspective and just that sense of wonder. Really, when she goes to Lisbon, I love how those scenes are shot. And a lot of times, like, she's either, she's framed from, like, where we see her looking up at something or, like, in a low angle shot. And I think that that's, that's really clever. And I love how when we see Godwin's house at the end, that's in color. So what was once in black and white is color by the end, which I think is a really cool detail. I do appreciate the cinematography work here, I think. With them choosing between lenses, Lanthimos and Ryan only used one camera throughout the shoot. So I think with them only using four to five lenses, that's really where Lanthimos' vision comes through and allows him to really create this aesthetic that is very much his. Him and Robbie work together on The Favorite, but it's really only these two that they have together and... One thing that's different from the favorite is that they use zoom lenses here. And I think that helps show the characters differently in terms of Bella and again, the journey that she's on. But I mentioned the Petzval lenses earlier. That is something else that they used here to further distort not only the fisheye because that was more of a four millimeter lens, but still this otherworldly perception in terms of just what the camera is showing you, and they didn't have to edit anything beyond that. But I like how they, and Ryan talks about the lighting and how they used LED backdrops. So that's, again, something else that they use to make things look very weird amongst all of their sets. So what would your write-in vote be? My write-in vote would I think be my overall winner in the category. That would be Lukash Zal for The Zone of Interest. 
I think that this film is just exquisitely shot. There are shots in this film that just took my breath away and that I can still think of just clear as day in what they are saying about our characters, about our world. The one shot in particular that we mentioned the last time we talked about the zone of interest is the one that's really sticking with me where we see one of the kids shut the other brother in the greenhouse and then you see the smoke rising in the distance. It's this really horrifying depiction of generational evil and how those sorts of practices are passed down and how it's so natural, I think, for children to mimic what their parents are doing and sometimes without even knowing it. And it's just this really creepy, unsettling depiction of that. I also think often of the shot of Sandra Huller's character trying on that fur coat and there's just nothing to it. There's this like everyday quality that is so frightening. And I think Glazer and Zal, the way they play with color, there's this infrared sequence of this girl placing apples. There's another shot of a flower I keep thinking of. Again, we will talk more about the zone of interest when we get into some of our above the line categories, but the cinematography is really one of the things that sticks with me and I think makes this one of the best, if not the best movie of the year. I wish we could have seen that in production design too. I think a lot of those things you're talking about play well on the camera, but just these locations that they're shooting, it's very eerie and unsettling. My write-in vote here would be for Godland. I mentioned this on our end of 2023 episode, but it was on the short list. It didn't get nominated, but I think it's still one of the most beautiful films we had last year. It's another one that was shot in the four to three aspect ratio on 35 millimeter Kodak film. And it just has the appearance of analog photography. It has those rounded corners and the way they shoot people and nature. So it's about this guy's journey to Iceland and Everything is framed so beautifully in the shot that this ratio, I think, is perfect for that. Plus, it looks like photographs from the 19th century, which is when the story is taking place. And I think just how it feels so elemental, there are really no limits to the camera here. It moves so freely, and they had to actually like hike all of the camera equipment through harsh weather conditions. It's just a magnificent film. And I mentioned also on that episode, but there's a shot that took them two years to film because it's this time-lapse feature, and it just kind of blows you away when you watch it, realizing what's happening. So I recommend seeing this movie if you can. It's wonderful. Very, I'm going to very soon. It's still on the Criterion channel, so I need to just set aside the time to be devastated or to have that sort of film-going experience. <laughs> but... What would your winner be? I think my winner would be between Killers and Oppenheimer. I feel like in multiple categories, I'm okay with two or three winners, which is honestly a nice feeling to have. But I think both of their works here are great in just different ways. Prieto was more devastating and Hoytema's kind of caught me by surprise in this really magnificent way that Nolan films usually do, but I think just the way they captured and used that new film stock really surprised me. So 
I think either of them, really. They both deserve it. What do you think? I'm going with Killers of the Flower Moon here. I think that what Prieto does is just beautiful. It and and terrifying. I think there is a it has that quality that I think the best American epics have. And I think about so many scenes and so many shots from this movie and how he pulled them off and just how haunting they are. And when I think about the five nominees, this is the one that's the most memorable to me in terms of how it looks. I think the scene I keep going back to is there are two of them. One is when Lizzie, Molly's mother, dies. And we have, I think, what's one of the most beautiful scenes in film this year, but also something that only Scorsese could do just because of his understanding of faith and spirituality and thinking about death, where she meets her ancestors. And in that moment, Prieto changed the look dramatically, he said, when she opens her eyes. It's all of a sudden much more colorful than it was before. And in that part of the scene, he used a Technicolor LUT instead of autochrome. You can feel the difference when it shifts back to after she's being escorted away by her ancestors, seemingly on to the next life. It goes from Technicolor LUT back to autochrome LUT. And then the other scene I always think of is that fire scene after Hale sets his land on fire and we have that haunting score and the shot, the look that Prieto creates is like you're looking through a flame and you just see these men through the flame. It's like a painting. So I would say Killers of the Flower Moon. So that was our second installment in our Contender series this year. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we have a very big episode in our Contender series. We will be talking about all four acting categories. So supporting actor, supporting actress, lead actor, and lead actress. I'm very excited to get into these. Yeah, big episode coming, whether we know the winners or not. We'll also have SAG soon after, so... Definitely tune into that one, and thank you all for listening today. Feel free to rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OscarWildePod. You can also find bonus content at patreon.com slash OscarWild and updated nomination predictions and other content at our website, OscarWild.Squarespace.com. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you.